0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Hour Two Cents with MBA. I'm Jackson Hathaway, Executive Vice President Member Services. We're glad you can join us. Before we get started, we wanted to do something a little different. Moving forward, we'll be introducing endorsed partners as a part of our podcast program. This will give you a chance to learn a little bit more about companies that work closely with banks across the state to improve services for customers and communities. Our first endorsed partner up is is Purple Wave and our Vice President of Legislation and Advocacy Programming, David Kent, conducted an interview with David Summers of Purple Wave to talk a little bit more about the company.
1: Joining us today from Purple Wave is Dave Summers. And some of you may have met Dave at an NBA event over the years. And if you have, you probably know him as Purple Wave Dave. Dave, how are you doing? Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself.
2: David, I'm great, thank you. Uh, We're helping a lot of folks out in these times. Um, about me, I came on board with uh, Purple Wave in 2007, work as a lender liaison. My, my role uh, within Purple Wave has grown through the years from cold calls to bankers and hearing a lot of purple who to nowadays running hard, making sure we're not selling assets out of trust and helping as needed with lender-referred work.
1: No, well, that's that's great. I appreciate that, Dave. Uh, why
2: don't you
1: tell us a little bit about Purple Wave and, and the services that you provide to banks and and to a lot of our member banks? Uh, I know many of our members are, are very familiar with the services you provide, but for those that don't, what what does Purple Wave do?
2: Yes, sir. Um, Purple Wave is an online equipment auction. We create liquidity from construction, ag. And titled assets. And the, the process uh, is we noted as straight, simple sold. We go to the assets, gather information, take photos, build listings, market and sell the assets. We collect the payments. The buyers go to the sellers and remove the assets. And we then assign the net proceeds.
1: No, and that's great. I know how how simple that that process you make it uh, for our banks, and um, we we certainly appreciate that, and I know our banks do too. And and we also appreciate your time today on the on the call. Uh, one last thing before we go, though, tell our listeners how to get in contact with you and your team over there at Purple Wave.
2: Well, and and thank you, David. Yes, sir. Um, we appreciate our MBA partnership. Uh, I, uh, in preparing for this, uh, this call, I, I thought about this during the week. We, I visit with the Missouri banker, uh, probably if not every day, at least three or four times a week, uh, cause we share many mutual customers. Um, purplewave.com is, is our website and my contact information can be found in there. So if I can help in any way, give me a call. Uh, shoot me an email whatever you're comfortable with and again thanks a bunch we we appreciate it
1: no we we appreciate you appreciate your support again uh uh, you know of our banks and and of the missouri bankers association as well Uh, you've been an endorsed partner for for several years now and it's always good although we we weren't able to to connect this year uh outside of our control for reasons outside of our control but we certainly appreciate appreciate your support during uh, our convention and during our executive management conference, and hopefully we'll get back to that starting again uh, next year, and we'll look forward to, to visiting with you and seeing you uh, during that time. So again, Dave Summers from NBA endorsed partner Purple Wave. For more information on the NBA endorsed partner program, uh, please visit uh, our website, www.mobankers.com, For more information on Purple Wave, again, you can visit purplewave.com. Thank you.
0: Thank you to David and Dave. And now it's time for our regularly scheduled program. In this episode of the podcast, we conducted a follow-up interview with one of our earliest guests, Casey Matthews, Chief Investment Officer for UMB Bank. Casey, early in the pandemic, gave us a projection for what it would take for the economic crisis to resolve itself, as well as what to expect out of GDP growth and forecast for economic sustainability for the next two or three years. Since that time, we've seen the United States re-enter a growth phase. And Casey joined us again to discuss what to expect throughout the course of the next year, as well as what kind of hindrances might remain on the economy if things related to the virus or to stimulus were to change. So with that, please welcome Casey Matthews, Chief Investment Officer for UMB, as he dives deeply into what the economic forecast for 2021
3: portends. Well, again, thanks for having me. It's always good to talk to you about the economy and markets. Um, I'm Casey Matthews. I'm the chief investment officer for UMB um, here in Kansas City, Missouri. As I said, about a year ago, we had an interview with you
0: where uh, you talked about the economic forecast leading out of 2020 and into 2021. And I think we had kind of settled on an an L-shaped or a very gradual checkmark recovery. Now we're kind of in the first stage of 2021. We have better vision, as you tend to do in economics, once you know where things stand. So I want to start with just asking you about GDP growth now. What are your expectations
3: for GDP in 2021? Yeah, well, let me, let me clarify that because what happened is uh, a year ago, we thought that we would see an upward sloping L, maybe it's the Nike swoosh type recovery in the economy. And I think it was a little bit better than most people expected, maybe a little bit better than we expected as well. So the economy is healing. Uh, we expect to see a robust economic growth this calendar year, 2021, for a couple of reasons. One is we're still in recovery mode. What I mean by that is if I take you back to the fourth quarter of 2019, the high water mark as far as GDP is concerned, was $21.7 trillion. And we all know what happened in the beginning of 2020, but by the end of 2020, gdp was only at 21.4 it still hadn't eclipsed or passed the pre-crisis level so when you're in recovery mode you can get some bigger gdp numbers the second reason why i would suggest we're going to see robust numbers is stimulus and i assume we're going to talk more about that momentarily but we know we had uh Significant stimulus back in March, the CARES Act, $2.2 trillion. We got $900 billion in December, approved by President Trump. And we know that one of the top priorities with President Biden is more stimulus. So an incredible amount of liquidity in the marketplace. Number three would be the COVID vaccines. There's been some fits and starts with the distribution of the vaccines, but I think states are getting better and better at it. The supply of the vaccines coming on uh, with other uh, manufacturers, pharmaceutical companies coming online with their own vaccine. So as more and more uh, parts of the world get vaccinated, the economy will lift any restrictions and people will feel comfortable and safe going out and consuming, thus supporting robust economic activity. Then lastly, it's just financial conditions. When I say financial conditions, I kind of it's a hodgepodge of low interest rates, easy um, uh, credit, there's a credits available currencies, all those go into a financial conditions index, and it's very accommodative. For those reasons, I think you'll see somewhere between four and five percent GDP. I remember you had a contraction last year. It was three and a half percent last year, severe contraction. But for if we really get our hands around the the covid situation the sooner we do that i think the closer you'll be to five percent and maybe even above five percent that's kind of the whisper number out there better than five percent in december and january COVID raised its ugly head again and uh, you got some uh, cases spiking some hospitalization capacity issues and things like that if we get another wave of that, maybe we're closer to 4%. But nevertheless, 4 to 5, 4 to 6 is going to be a good year for 2021. Uh, so if I, I hear you right, the moral
0: of the story is there were fits and starts, as you said, both for the vaccine rollout, but also trying to get into that corrective phase last year coming out of the, the huge dip and into the latter half of the year. And now it maybe will normalize a little more and we'll get a glide path that's a bit more upward consistently instead of the the rocking and rolling that we all got to enjoy during 2020. I would say a
3: sharp rebound because Mm -hmm. if we get a 4% or better number, that's the first time since the year 2000 that we saw 4 plus percent GDP growth here in the United States. And that's uh, that kind of leads into the
0: next question that I would have for you. Um, You know, it, it does when you you mentioned that it's been over well over a decade since we've seen that kind of growth, a lot of it will be driven by what consumers are willing to do as they get more comfortable, as there's better vaccination or herd immunity, et cetera. So do you see a boost in consumption out there uh, kind of waiting on the horizon as we get through the pandemic and into a stage where pinup up demand, um, you know, we have astronomically high savings rates right now. Consumers are saving at rates that they haven't seen since the Great Depression. Do you see that? Um, kind of showing up for us in a favorable way in 2021? I would suggest
3: it's already shown up and will continue. The reason I would say that is, well, let's let's first take a look at um, uh, expenditures. And that's a big, broad category. That's about $15 trillion a year. And you know it had a nice recovery, but we're not at new highs. We're not at pre-crisis highs just yet. One reason is when you look at expenditures it does include services and parts of the economy are still closed services like um, hospitality and leisure cruise ships movies things like that are all under the expenditure umbrella and some health care services such as elective surgeries people were maybe reluctant to go into the hospital to get some type of elective procedure done the fear of contracting COVID. But a subset of expenditures is retail sales. And that's about a $6 trillion segment. That's what you can imagine. Uh, E-commerce, going to the mall. um, It does include some services like restaurants, uh, building supply stores, garden supply stores, things like that. It is at an all-time high. And uh, we just got new data this week that retail sales for the month of January were up 5.3%. The reason being, people are starting to get those $600 stimulus checks. So clearly the consumer not only has the ability to spend because of all the stimulus and because people are going back to work, unemployment's at 6.3%, they also have the willingness to consume. And then maybe to answer your question going forward, we, we have an incredible amount of savings because all this liquidity was flooded into the market. People didn't need all of it. So some of them saved it. And today, if you look at, uh, I'm getting a little technical on you. Um, When you look at MZM, money with a zero uh, duration, meaning like money markets, cash, we have $22 trillion. We have one year's worth of economic activity in cash. So once those those other services, cruise ships, movies, um, um, we we feel comfortable going and getting elective surgeries. Those healthcare services. Once all those open up, we've got all that cash just flowing into the market, continuing to support economic activity. That's a really interesting,
0: I think, way to position what we've seen to this point. We've regained and grown at a radical rate without the service sector contributing in any meaningful way for the last you know, six months to a year. So you're just talking about tacking that on as we get into a better place uh, with the virus and with economic conditions and consumers' comfort level, which I think is probably an underestimated part of this for a lot of folks early on, but certainly has shown itself to be much more robust than uh, maybe we anticipated uh, coming into 2021. And of
3: course, I would, I would suggest if I may add something on that, excuse me, I would suggest that talk about pent up demand. Mm -hmm. We are all just itching to go on vacation. We're reluctant to get on planes and go to Disney World and things like that. So now that we have all this liquidity, we have all this cash. Once we feel safe. And we can consume in a familiar and convenient environment. We are all going on vacation in that hospitality and leisure sector, I think we'll see a significant spike. Mm. Well, and to that point, the impact of additional stimulus uh,
0: is another variable in this that is increasingly important and looking like it's moving a lot faster uh, since Congress is attempting to make things happen uh, without the traditional budgetary process and going through reconciliation measures. So what do you see as the impact of stimulus uh, that's out there on the horizon, this $1.9 1 tr- 1. 9 sorry, that the Biden administration has proposed, and whether or not we could see more in 2021? Yeah, I think there's a
3: very high probability that we're going to get somewhere between a $1.6 and $1.9 trillion additional stimulus, the American uh, Rescue Act, of course, a top priority but with the president. And when you look at the composition of Congress today, it seems like the probability of, of uh, that getting done uh, increases. Because remember, I'll take you back to May of last year. Do keep in mind that in May of last year, the House passed the HEROES Act, which was, I think, just shy of $3 trillion. And it didn't get through the Senate. So I do think that has a high probability of passing, and that would include more direct payments to consumers. I think the number was like $1,400. Well. Exactly what we were talking about, that is going to support retail sales and consumption. And you can just imagine the sooner we open up this economy, we're going to go on uh, uh, extended vacations and support that hospitality and leisure uh, industry. But I do think you will also see t- some type of infrastructure spending that had bipartisan support over the years. And that could be somewhere between one and two trillion dollars. That'll increase jobs. repair our bridges, um, things like that. And uh, I think that has also a high probability of, uh, of passing sometime this
0: year. That's a that'd be a really interesting and an important addition, I think, to what people project for the year, how it impacts uh, the labor market. Like you said, we certainly have seen labor market improvements, but, you know, depending on what the Fed says at a given meeting, you wonder, well, how many people have left the labor market? How many are in? You know, generally the Fed, which plays an important role in all this, has has consistently tried to lean into easing financial conditions. Um, And to our bankers out there, of course, this means uh, perpetually low interest rates. Some of that creates headaches, but some of it also creates uh, opportunities in the market. What do you see from the Fed? What kind of accommodative financial conditions from the Fed? How are those impacting the market? What do they mean
3: for the next six to 12 months? So the Fed's been very transparent on their game plan. Of course, what they want to do is create a little bit of inflation. If you think about it, they've had some difficulty and maybe are a bit frustrated because really going back uh, to the Great Recession... 2008 and 2009 the fed has been trying to create some inflation and they just haven't been able to they've had quantitative easing low interest rates for well over 10 years now and of course inflation hasn't even really been on the radar screen so i think the fed is going to do exactly as they telegraphed they're going to keep short-term rates low they will continue their bond purchasing program of 120 billion dollars uh, a month um, and I don't see that changing, even if the economy starts to heat up, even if we start to see some inflation, because I think they they have said we're okay with overshooting our target um, for a while. We want to make sure it's sustainable. So let's talk about their target. They want to get 2% um, core inflation. Their favorite indicator, core PCE, stands at 1.5%. And even if I look at Long-term inflation expectations, I look at the five-year, five-year forwards, um, the futures market, and the expectations are something like 2.1% inflation five years from now, right at the Fed target. I I would suggest that that is probably our most significant risk that we've identified at this time, and that is a surprise with inflation. That with all liquidity, with the economy heating up, all of a sudden inflation shows up sooner than everyone's thinking. And then the Fed starts talking about controlling inflation, and we have another 2013 uh, uh, taper tantrum. Uh, but right now, it doesn't seem to be a significant threat to the economy, at least over the next, or inflation doesn't seem to be a threat. And I think the Fed will remain at hold, on hold, at least until the end of the year. And then they'll have to reassess the data, we'll reassess the data, um, see where inflation is, and if if their tune changes a bit, then we'll have to make some changes in portfolios. But But right now, I think the Fed keeps a very accommodative posture. Well, and
0: on the other half of the, or maybe the other side of the line, you have corporate earnings, you have equity markets. Um, certainly, seen a lot of excitement there in the past month or so, maybe more than uh, most of us would have ever expected. But right now, when you look at corporate earnings and equity markets, how are you expecting them
3: to fare? Well, earnings will just be great. You know, last year we had an earnings contraction, 2020, because parts of the economy shut down. So this year, we expect something north of 25% earnings growth. We could get to 100 and uh, pardon me, we could get to 170 dollars. Of earnings on the S&P 500 and that'll be an all-time high. So, that'll be good, but valuations in the market still remain slightly stretched. So, right now we trade at something like 24 times uh, uh, next year's estimates and that's a bit rich Typically you the average a long term average is something like 16 times forward earnings. But you know, I don't like to broad uh, cast these very broad nets on valuation. What I mean by that is. I think you have to look at the current environment. And then say, where should valuations be? So as we just talked about an incredible amount of liquidity. Low interest rates, uh, accommodative Fed low inflation threat and when you go back in history you don't have a a perfect um, comparison but you have similar environments where in that case guess what you can have rich valuations so when you compare that you know 23 24 times forward earnings to historical periods that are similar you're like hey it's right on top of where it should be but like i said if the environment changes well, guess what? The market's going to be repriced. But for the time being, I think markets could continue to move higher and possess a richly valued uh, evaluation attached to it because of the environment. Like I said, when you see inflation and you see spiking rates, well, guess what? Valuation is going to change. But I would say for the next year, maybe even 12, uh, 24 months, I think the, you can justify the valuation given the current environment well and to sidetrack
0: just a hair outside of traditional banking conversations but into an area that many people have found interesting in the last month i do want to ask you more specifically about what your thoughts are on recent excitement in the equity markets driven by the GameStop phenomenon the reddit phenomenon that caught all our attention now is catching congressional hearings does this signify to you fundamental changes in the way that equities work that the way the market will function is it just a blip is it something that we should stay tuned into? Uh, what are your thoughts generally on on how that transpired and what it might mean for uh, the market moving forward?
3: You know, I don't believe. Now, I, I would tell you that I've been in the business for 30 years, which probably tells you nothing more than I still have a lot to learn. But uh, you, know, you in, over 30 years, you see a lot. But uh, you know, some of this is not new. I always get a little bit of a kick out of people who say we've never never seen anything like this but you know if we walk down memory lane together we can we can go back to the early 20s when there was a um, a grocery store chain called piggly Wiggly which i believe still exists in parts of the south of our country um, but the same thing it was a short squeeze and the stock went from 30 dollars to 124-ish and then back down to 30. I'll take you to 2000, maybe a little more recent data. You, we may have forgotten that in 2008, Volkswagen was actually the largest company out there because the stock went from 50 to 275 down to 70. And then, of course, just uh, 2018, Tilray, the uh, uh, marijuana company, you know, went from um, 17 dollars to 220 down down to 31 dollars. Some people that got the trade right and they're very happy to tell the media that look how easy it is to make money in the market. You never hear about the person that bought, you know, AMC at $25 a share or $15 a share, and here it is at $5 a share. You know, so some of this I don't believe is new. And one thing that I always like to communicate to our investors that trading's fine. That's totally if you want to trade, that's totally fine. Trading, never confuse trading with investing. I mean, investing is not buying GameStop, a company that is on the brink of bankruptcy and running it up to $300 a share, right? So this will still come and go. I think we'll see more Piggly Wigglies. We'll see more Volkswagens. We'll see more till We'll see more GameStops. But at the end of the day, um, to make money in the markets, I think you need earnings on a sustainable basis. And that's investing. And it takes time. There aren't any get-rich-quick schemes out there um, on a sustainable basis. So I don't think it changed anything. Maybe there's some new regulation that comes out there for the traders. But again, we're not traders. Not knocking trading, it's fine. We are investors. And it won't change the way we invest money. I think it's a really insightful answer. And I appreciate you
0: stepping outside the, the banking uh, world for just a second to speak to it. And to, to bring us back to banking, because I know this is another area that, um, you know, has, has been questionable for the last year. We've, we had seen endless, what felt like endless M&A activity out there amongst banks for uh, a, quite a run. Then we hit COVID and now question marks about, well, when is it worth it? Is it worth it? Will it be worth it? You know, if interest rates rates remain low, what are you thinking the impact will be on merger and acquisition activity, specifically um, as it relates to needing to optimize profits as banks really look at the balance
3: sheet and think about what that profit looks like? Well, I think you'll you'll continue to see consolidation in the finance and banking world. I think to survive today in that in that sector, you uh, you need a, a very robust digital platform and you're still going to need some of the bricks and mortar. So if you're lacking one of them, some type of merger and acquisition probably is prudent. Um, and just the, the demands for efficiency continue. And of course, sometimes uh, the consolidation and uh, a merger and reducing back office and things like that could increase your efficiency ratios dramatically. So. I think that will continue. I don't see any change happening with the consolidation of the industry. You, you tack on the fact that so many banks are now thinking about,
0: well, how permanently can we make this at home thing, you know, or at least how much operational uh, capacity can we gain if we go to part-time remote structures and, and free up some of the overhead expense that we're used to dealing with. You know, to your point, the efficiency ratios improve and the MA kind of becomes more and more inevitable, uh, it seems. You know, banks are going to find ways to just hone in on what matters, and then if they don't have it, go purchase those things that might add to the portfolio.
3: So I might might add that, excuse me again, I might add that, you know, the competitive landscape has changed as well. You have, you know, we talked about trading and GameStop. We can talk about the Robinhoods out there that not only are a trading platform, but also can offer and will offer banking services. So all of a sudden, you know, you have a brand new competitor that has a very different cost structure than the rest of the banks out there.
0: You're going to give some of the bankers listening little nightmares as they think about OCC <laughs> chartering. What's the Fed going to do? You know, we're we're all under the fintech umbrella of what happens next. But I think it's a very auspicious and important thing to consider, and um, certainly will have impact on our our everyday operations and strategies for a long time to come. If anything, it's it's just picking up the pace. So to, to kind of close this out, I appreciate as I said your your thoughts on where things stand and what we're looking forward to. I would just ask you a, a broad question, uh, a, kind of a simple one that I, I know will uh, it it will imply more complexity than the answer itself will probably include. But if you were to say there are you know two or three big things you would keep your eye on uh, to kind of get your 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 pulse of the economy, to get the pulse of the markets for our audience out there who may or may not be investors themselves or maybe deep in the investment side of the bank or or just kind of aware of it. What factors do you think are the most important things to keep their eyes on?
3: Oh, you know, I always like to watch the stock market. The stock market's a leading indicator. So the stock market has been right, right? The stock market started rallying in the fourth quarter of last year uh, quite significantly. Uh, People were nervous about the election, which, again, we don't think politics plays into a lot of this stuff. And lo and behold, the stock market was right. Those things are going to be fine. And so far, so good. So I always like to watch the stock market, um, which is a leading indicator for economic conditions. It is a bit confusing. So the other variables that I like to look at clearly is the labor market labor market is and so it leads into all these things. Obviously, if we have discretionary income and confidence, we go out and consume and when we don't, uh, we don't consume. Right, and it's a little bit confusing just because even though uh, unemployment headline unemployment has come down to 6.3% from the peak back in April of call it 15%. If you look at continued claims, those receiving some type of unemployment insurance. Oh, off the top of my head, it's, I think, a little over 5 million. But in addition to that, you have all these additional programs from the CARES Act. The uh, pandemic, emergency, unemployment assistance, which, um, and others, which give benefits to those that typically didn't qualify, such as gig workers, self-employed workers. And then, of course, you had enhanced benefits. Meaning once you ran out of your 26-week state unemployment insurance, these other programs kicked in up to 50 weeks. So you have almost 18 million people receiving some type of assistance. So I think all these variables that you might see on the news or coming across your screen or whatever the case might be, you have to know that many times there are layers underneath those variables, and we peel them back and look at them. So, even though the the labor market is healing to some degree, um, and when you look at some of these other programs, it clouds the data of what's really going on, who's really employed, um, and things like that. So. Those are just a couple of things that I like to keep an eye on as a barometer for the economy. But and also, you know, there's this I don't want to call it manipulation because it has a negative connotation, but rather stimulus also clouds. The economic activity, right? Because that's not sustainable. You get a stimulus check and then you make another one. Then sooner or later, it's going to end. Has to end, right? And uh, because of that stimulus, it's going to boost economic activity. The question is, what type of traction will we have once it's all over?
0: Casey, thank you very much. That was a a wonderful answer and a good way to close our interview and look forward to hopefully having another one with you and eventually an in-person one if we can ever get this virtual
3: world behind us. That's right. Good chatting with you.